Catherine, the Citizens' Assembly are going to meet this weekend in Dublin and on the 4th of November to discuss how the Irish government and the Irish people can become leaders in climate change. This is an important move you would see as the environmental officer for the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice and you yourself and the centre have put in a submission. So tell me about your submission and what's going on at the Assembly and what we can expect. The Citizens' Assembly are meeting, as you say, uh, over two weekends to discuss the question that's been put forward to them is how can the state become a leader in tackling uh, climate change? And NGOs, faith-based groups, organisations and the general public were invited to make submissions uh, this August, uh, just gone. So we made a submission and uh, we're also a member of the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition, which also made a submission. And I think in total over 1,200 submissions were received. That's hopeful, isn't it? That's very hopeful and I think it just reflects how important a topic this is across Irish society, not just for organisations like ourselves, but also just for members of the general public. All those submissions are online and it's really interesting to go online and, and to see how much people actually care about this and how much people want the state, want the government to take a much stronger position on tackling climate change. What kind of groups, if you did go online, have you seen, or is it mostly individuals? There's a lot of individuals. There's groups like, um, obviously, ourselves. There's the Irish uh, farming organisations. There's uh, TROCRA, a lot of the development organisations, yeah. DOCUS, the environmental pillar. Um, and as I said, a lot of individuals, which is really great because it gets people involved in, in the policy context. And I think that's where the Citizens' Assembly process has been really useful. It gets um, people involved just in thinking about, well, well how can the government do, do better? Um, and what do I want to see in terms of the government acting on behalf of, of me and my future and, and my future children in tackling this really, really important issue? Do you think the days are gone of the climate deniers? I mean, I know Donald Trump has pulled out of the, the mm. Paris Accord, but a lot of people are looking at that and it's nearly reinforced their belief that actually there is climate change. Mm. Do you think those days are over, really, that the battle has been won in terms of accepting that mm. climate change is a reality? Well, first of all, we were really um, happy with how the Citizens' Assembly actually framed the question. So the question to the Assembly wasn't, does climate change exist or not? It was actually, well, how can the state play a role in tackling climate change? So it was, it was very much, this is happening, what are we going to do? But also I think that some of the events that have been, some of the weather patterns that have been happening across the world, not only have we seen 500 people displaced in County Donegal as a result of extreme weather over a very short period of time, we've also seen very intense hurricanes happening in the Caribbean, impacting on some really vulnerable poor communities in Puerto Rico, yeah. Caribbean islands absolutely and i heard that those hurricanes they may happen anyway but mm. they were ferocious and lasted longer because mm. the sea had heated up by one and a half degrees absolutely and i think that's really important to understand that climate change is it's an amplifier it's an amplifier in terms of amplifying things that are going to happen anyway but also amplifying i suppose social inequalities in society and amplifying kind of social risks. So uh, I suppose the, the, the poorer communities are, are a lot more at risk of the impacts of really intense storms. And um, it's a lot more difficult for poorer communities to to rebuild and just get on with their everyday lives. And also to get the attention that they need, because I was speaking to a friend of mine last night who has three houses in Florida, very upmarket area, mm. but she mentioned that 25 miles away mm. in the part of Naples where they are, that they're really poor 
black mm. community who were living in trailers were just wiped out, sewage, everything everywhere. Yeah. And in Puerto Rico, which is an American state, they have no electricity and they're still if that had been, she said, like a really posh upmarket area, there would have been action immediately and they would have been looked after, whereas they are poor, they are Puerto Ricans, and nobody really cares. Yeah, no, absolutely. And unfortunately, a lot of the the media focus tends to look at problems that we can relate to in, 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 in the Western world, so to speak. So, for example, as the, the hurricanes were, were happening in, in the Caribbean, we also had very intense flooding in parts of India, Bangladesh, where, where thousands of people were actually killed. And we didn't see that same focus on social media or on the news. And so, and one of the things that we highlight in our submission is that climate justice is very much at the core of the government taking action on climate change. And that would involve increasing the amount of finance that we give to the Green Climate Fund. That's a fund that was set up to, to help people who are much more exposed to the impacts of climate change to mitigate and then also to adapt to the impacts as they unfold. And why is it that it does seem to be that the poor suffer disproportionately? I mean, partly in the Naples situation, it was because the way that the hurricane tipped at the very end Mm -hmm. and you sort of feel the hand of God couldn't spare the poorest of the poor, Mm -hmm. if that's your vision of God. At the same time, there are other reasons as well, aren't there, that the poor suffer disproportionately and that's why your submission was linked to justice. Yeah absolutely well I suppose first of all poorer communities tend to have smaller carbon footprints you know if you think about it you've probably less money to be taking foreign holidays or to own properties in, in parts of the Mediterranean or whatever so the carbon footprint is less but I suppose in terms of how we plan in society when you look at say urban planning poorer communities are often just more in, in crowded kind of situations have less resources poorer communities don't may not even be, be able to avail of house insurance for example and that's a problem even here in Ireland that if you're exposed to flooding, you may not even be able to afford insurance. You may not be able to get it. You may not have health insurance. So it's those it's those kind of inequalities that exist anyway. But when you're exposed to really intense storms or weather patterns, if you're living in a tent or a caravan or, you know, your ability to rebuild your life, you might be already, un- you might be unemployed. You know, so it's just, it's so much more difficult to really rebuild your life. And then on a wider issue, we see deforestation and native Mm. peoples being moved and they've no say, they've no power. Big business comes in, Mm. takes over their land, aided and abetted by a government that has been paid off. Mm. And then that has a knock-on effect on the climate. Like they say, the tsunami Mm. uh, in Sri Lanka a number of years ago, the the devastation was worse because the poor fishermen had been moved Mm. off the the front part of the land and the whole ecosystem had changed and the early warning systems of the birds who would normally fly away, who weren't in the trees, wasn't there. And that 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 was, even though it was a natural disaster, it was exacerbated by all those facts and that the poor again suffered. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's it. And I think that's really important in terms of our understanding of climate change is that it amplifies all these social inequalities that already exist. That's what climate justice means. It's about trying to mitigate against those risks. And I think going forward in terms of how we do our urban planning, 
how we plan for for nature within their urban spaces and um, how we provide protection um, from um, flooding for example we really need to take those social inequalities into account so that it's a much more even playing field in terms of people's ability to adapt and to rebuild their lives. So that's what you were basically saying in the submission from the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice. Anything else that you want the government to take on board? We also recommended that the government first needs to do its fair share. It's very difficult for the government to become a leader if we're not even doing our fair share. And at the moment, we're actually way off track in terms of meeting our 2020 targets. And it looks quite challenging for us to be meeting our 2030 targets. So these targets, they're essentially EU targets that we have to meet in terms of our emissions across a number of sectors. And we are one of only five EU countries which won't meet its 2020 targets. We have an overall 2050 target of an 80% emissions across a number of sectors. And we're nowhere near even achieving that, even though it's only 30 years away, which is not a very, very long time in terms of trying to really radically change how we organise society or how we, how we go about doing our everyday business. So are you hopeful then that the Citizens' Assembly can make an impact if the government doesn't seem to be even t- afraid of the EU mm. and sanctions and serious sanctions at that? Yeah, I am, I suppose. Uh, there are a, a, a number of good, good signs or good signals. So, for example, this year we've had a national mitigation plan um, and it's it's not wonderful, but it's it's a step. Um, we also the government's also implementing a national dialogue on climate action, which is all about, um, I suppose, um, facilitating discussion and debate across Irish society and trying to maximise consensus. So that that's a good sign. We would argue, though, that we really need to have that strong political leadership. That's key. That's something that even like Pope Francis acknowledges in Ladasha Sea. That strong political leadership is really essential in tackling these problems. And on that regard, is it there, do you think? I mean, the Green Party were pretty much devastated at the last election, but they seem to be coming back again in terms of councillors. Mm. Do you see it with the major parties? Do you think that it, the Green agenda is an issue for them? Uh, certainly within the National Mitigation Plan, we would have expressed an, a concern that there is very much a wait-and-see approach. Now, what is that? Because this is one thing I think is a bit disturbing about the whole climate change debate. Mm. The language used is very alienating. You know, a national mitigation plan, Mm. that speaks nothing to me. And I'm sure to loads of other people, I don't know what that means. It could be anything. Yes. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that's really one of the challenges is how we communicate around something that is that that's complex something that's about science but also something that's about moral responsibility ethical responsibility that's about human development and i think we need to get the language right and unfortunately maybe the, the policy world has been quite poor at this um i think maybe this is why the citizens assembly received so much so many submissions because they made it easy you just went online you typed your submission into a box and you you clicked enter Whereas with, with government submissions, for example, it, it can be very daunting and it can be very alienating to the general public. To what is a national mitigation plan? So a nas- the national mitigation plan is um, essentially, um, well, it should be a plan that will guide society towards reducing the amount of emissions that it outputs. Uh, so it should be a, a... So keeping the air cleaner. 
essentially keeping keeping the air cleaner, keeping yeah. less less emissions in the air in the atmosphere. Uh, across a number of sectors. So transport, for example, across the residential sector, across the energy, so how we produce our energy. Be great if they said it that way. They might get much more support. Anyway, you're you're quietly hopeful that things are moving slowly along and that this assembly at the weekend and then the, on the 4th of November may make an impact. Yeah, so what, what happens then is that the assembly will be addressed by a number of expert speakers and by a number of, um, I suppose, civil society organisations. And then obviously they will also review the 1,200 submissions and then they will make a number of recommendations to the government. And of course, it's up to the government to consider those recommendations and to consider what to do with them. Um, But I suppose we're hopeful that it will send a strong signal that Irish society cares about this issue. Um, It's not just an issue that's, that's impacting on parts of Africa or parts of the Caribbean. We're seeing it now happening in Ireland as well. Um, and it's in everyone's best interest, including the government's interest, to, to really, um, I suppose, listen to the people, listen to the recommendations that come forward from the Assembly. And do something about it. Absolutely. There's a moral imperative, regardless of there being an economic case. There is also a strong moral imperative now at this point. Do you think the Pope's Laudato Si has made an impact? I know Donald Trump didn't seem to read it <laughs> since he went away <laughs> and a week later pulled out of the Paris Accord. Mm. Do you think... It has made an impact? Um, I think in terms of the rhetoric, it has. In terms of actual behaviour and commitment, I'm not so sure. Um, I, I, you know, certainly when the encyclical came out, there was so much focus on the document uh, among religious organisations and among secular groups and secular commentators. Uh, and, and, and it was received favourably. And I think that was really, really exciting. Uh, and I think it's kind of put Pope Francis as being this 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 figure that, that we now listen to, that when the Pope has something to say, we, we listen, the media pick up on it. There's usually discussion and I think that that's really really powerful now and I know uh, Enda Kenny uh, for example has acknowledged Pope Francis in the Doyle um, and the work that he's done but translating that then into the kind of ambitious policy context that's the hard part and you know for me the encyclical is all about economics rather than the environment how we organize ourselves economically and um, I think maybe some people see the encyclical as about, oh, it's about climate change. It's really so much more than that. And uh, as much as I think it's it's really put Pope Francis as a, 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 a main kind of spokesperson on environmental issues, I am slightly worried that maybe we've missed the boat a little bit in terms of really understanding what the encyclical is about. It's about how we relate to each other and how we like, relate to our earth and that includes all the other species that are on the earth. It's not just about climate. Climate is just one thing. There's a whole bigger web of life that that we're just part of. And I think that's what the core of the encyclical is all about. I think just seeing it as about climate change is narrowing it in terms of its potential.